Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate welcomes Joseph Lanza to discuss his classic and definitive book, Elevator Music, A Surreal History of Muzak, Easy Listening, and Other Mood Song. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Joseph Lanza, author of Elevator Music, a surreal history of Muzak, easy listening, and other mood song. Joseph, welcome. Hi. And it's a treat to have you. I read this book when it first came out in the 90s and then reread the, the newer edition to prepare for the show. And this is definitely the definition of an underserved and underloved genre. What drew you to this music? Years and years of being um, on the other side of uh, the norm, I guess. Um, I was attracted to this music really when I was a teenager. My parents would play the easy listening FM stations, which were pro- prolific in America at the time. This was in the 70s. And um, you know, at the time, I was listening to rock music just like everybody else. But sometimes I would relax and I would hear these versions of songs that I was familiar with, only they would be instrumentals. And once in a while, you'd even hear the Ray Conniff singers. And one time I heard the Ray Conniff singers do uh, a version of Gordon Lightfoot's If You Could Read My Mind. And there's this one phrase in the song where uh, the line goes, you'll, you'll know that ghost is me. And there are references to old time movies. And I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of trippy in a way. And, and, and it, it brought attention to the lyrics um, that I didn't hear from Gordon Lightfoot, which is usually the opposite of what easy listening does. Easy listening kind of makes you, allows you to drift and not so much concentrate on them. But at the same time, I thought that the Ray Kano singers had a ghostly um, enchanting quality that the Gordon Lightfoot original didn't have. And so that's what got me thinking about uh, the, the different layers of easy listening. And so I, I had a sort of similar experience, although it never drew 
my ear as something until it was gone, basically. And it was around the time that I read your book in the 90s when it came out that I realized that the kind of elevator music that I had grown up on, what you might call easy listening or light music, the the strings, the choruses, you know, the Ray Conniff style singers that you were describing, that that was all gone. And that suddenly in the 90s, our acoustic hygiene completely changed and you would have, you know, Limp Biscuit or something blaring in a Starbucks or the grocery store. And it's just this totally disruptive change. And it really made me appreciate the music once I could do my usual retro look back on it as something lost when for my entire life up to that point, I'd only been cognizant of it as a punching bag. I mean, everybody from every genre, and you make a list uh, in the Easy Listening Acid Trip, which we'll talk about next week, of all the genres, and virtually every genre looks down on easy listening, and elevator music became uh, an insult. And Muzak, which is a company, like a, a copyrighted term like Kleenex or Xerox, it's got a specific meaning. It refers to a specific service offered by a specific company, the Muzak Comp Corporation. And it was just taken for granted and hated on. But your book really um, helped clarify it and, and opened my ears to it and appreciate it in a great way. And and you talk in the inter in the preface to the new edition that the controversies that dogged this genre, and particularly Muzak, the piped-in music and workplaces and elevators, had been controversial throughout its existence. People were worried that it was manipulating people. People were worried that it was acoustic pollution. There were even lawsuits when Muzak was played on buses. And But now you say that most recognize that all music is manipulative and few care, and the controversy is now purely aesthetic. What do you think changed in the eras? Well... The principle against uh, music and easy listening goes back in time uh, to really the early part of the 20th century, when suddenly the mechanical reproduction of music became popular. And this was uh, sacrilegious to too many uh, established musicians. And one of the most vocal voices was John Philip Sousa, who coined the term uh, canned music. And in 1906, he wrote this diatribe called The Menace of Mechanical Music. And the idea was that music was meant to be heard in person. It was meant to be either uh, audiences were supposed to either actively listen to it being performed or supposed to be performed by musicians actively playing it. But when you started reproducing music through records and through, uh, as Muzak did, through telephone wires, and later we had the stereo, uh, music had a different function. It functioned for the listener more than the player. So you could put on Bach, you could put on Eric Satie, and you can also, you could have it on your stereo, but then again, you have a, a kitchen that you need to finish cleaning. You, you have some work you need to finish typing at your computer. You, you, you have a floor you need to finish sweeping. So music became less something that you listen to religiously and more as a background, as an addition to other life functions. This was considered just sacrilegious back then. And uh, what happened is that through the years, um, music, as it became recorded sound, it started becoming more of 
I, um, manipulative in, in a good sense. It made people happy. It let people have sing-along tunes. He started having more pop music. He had Tin Pan Alley, which grew into kind of the youth music of the of the 50s, you know, the, 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 the relaxing side of the, the rock and roll era. And then you had the 60s pop era, where suddenly easy listening started blending in with the youth music. You would have the Beatles. You would have the Chad and Jeremy. And then that's where I got into the whole uh, paradox of where some of the um, the um, drug era songs, the pop songs at least, uh, provided new fodder for easy listening arrangers. So I'd say uh, to, to go back to your question, uh, it there was always this prejudice against not only mechanical music and reproduced music, but popular music. And what happened was that through the years, uh, musicians and arrangers and producers kicked the canned music down the road, and they and they put the honest onto easy listening and music. Yeah, and it serves as a scapegoat. You've got a great quote in the book. That I think sums it up well, and if you'll excuse me, I want to quote you at length. The vast quantity of uncharitable jokes and condescending anecdotes directed against elevator music in general, and Muzak in particular, betray a lack of understanding about music's augmented role in a media-dominated culture. And I think that sums it up perfectly, but let's define our terms a little bit. There's three terms I want to define. Um, first, elevator music. Define elevator music. Elevator music has a literal origin. Um, in 1948, Muzak uh, joined forces with the Otis Elevator Company in, and put out an ad in Time magazine talking about how their lilting melodies helped elevator passengers. Uh, because even today, I find going into a, an elevator in a large building a frightening experience. Maybe even now more so because of people being uh, hung up on germs and wearing masks and whatever. But uh, elevators are terrifying. I remember when I used to go into the World Trade Center, um, you have to take two different elevators because the, the buildings were so tall. But the, uh, what, and it wasn't really a legend. It was part of Muzak's um, marketing strategy and Otis Elevator to help them along with it. And so what happened was that it, was, it didn't only play in elevators. What happened was that the music would show up in elevators because if a business used music by Muzak, it would be in the halls, it would be in the corridors, it would be in the offices, it would be in the restrooms, and it would also be in the elevators. But I like the term elevator music. There's nothing pejorative about it. It's music that was supposed to elevate the spirits. It was supposed to kind of, uh, it was supposed to be an aerated version of of other types of music, I guess, would be the best way to, to, to use it. So uh, the, to me, the term, it, it developed a negative connotation, but there's nothing intrinsically negative about elevator music. Like the term kitsch, I think in German means trash. So that would be a bad term, but elevator music needs to be rehabilitated as to, as to something positive. And I hope I've helped to do that. I think you have. And let's hear a little sample of some Muzak. This is Music for Muzak doing version of Volare from their Stimulus Progression 1974.
And that was music for Muzak, doing a version of Volare from the album Stimulus Progression 1974. I picked something from the my childhood. This is how I remember Muzak, but many people who grew up in the in the 40s, 50s, 60s would have a different sound that they hear when they hear Muzak. Now tell us what is Muzak? Well, Muzak is two two entities. It's the music that they used to play it was Muzak's bread and butter. From the 30s on, Muzak was uh, experimenting with ways of providing music which could function as as, as background. Um, and by by 1943, I think uh, Ben Selvin, who was Muzak's first music programmer. Uh, presented a paper to the Acoustical Society of America in New York saying that the, the best form of this music would be instrumental, not overly arranged and not repetitive. In other words, you wouldn't want one um, piano song followed by another piano song. You would change the instruments, you would change the tempo, but it would not, ideally it would not be overly arranged or, or, or obnoxious, okay, ideally. Uh, some of those stimulus progression albums varied in style. Um, they started coming out with those albums as promotion for their potential clients around 1969. I'm not sure if, if all of it represents the best of what Muzak did throughout the 60s and, 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 and the 70s and, 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 and into back into the 50s. But uh, the, the predominant style uh, often had strings as a backing, but there were other instruments. Because don't forget, if you wanted to play music for a supermarket or if you wanted to play music in a mall, it had to compete with the uh, ambient noise of people and shopping carts or whatever. So you would need trumpets, you would need guitars, you would need some type of an instrument which could counterpoint the smoothness of the background so that people could hear the tune. So that's, and that's essentially what easy listening on record was too. I, I, I found, I didn't find much of a difference between easy listening on record that you could buy and music by Muzak, only that Muzak had to be more careful because it had to program 24 hours a day in public places. So it had to be more mindful about having the track sound differently through the stimulus progression, the 15 minute hour blocks that it would set up and whatnot. But um, it's, it's much more useful, useful historically to see a similar there than a difference. Absolutely. And this idea of a stimulus progression is important to note that this is literally something they mapped out to, with research to try to perk workers up when they might be feeling down, you know, maybe after lunch or whatever, and then also kind of slow them down when they might be getting over agitated, uh, maybe the first thing in the morning. So it's, it's interesting. A lot of thought and science went into this. And the third term I'd like you to define for me is mood song. I made that up. That's my, that's my term. <laughs> it's a great coinage. I love it. Yeah, I even had a, well, I still, I still a registered copyright, I believe, but uh, mood song. I mean, you think of work song, you think of, um, I think there, there might have been some other uh, word I was thinking of, but I thought mood song would be an excellent way to summarize the whole thing. I didn't want to say mood music because that had many, that had two connotations. In America, it was easy listening. I think that's the person to first 
use it um, in a widespread commercial sense was Paul Weston when, uh, you know, after World War II, the big bands lost uh, their popularity. So uh, you, you had your pop singers like uh, Perry Como and Frank Sinatra, and then you had uh, mood music. You had, uh, uh, you know, um, he had one album that he came out in the 50s called Music for Easy Listening. But uh, he's, he's the one who, who coined the term mood music. In England, it has a different meaning. It means library music. So then that's many different mu- moods and backgrounds. That's music that you would hear in movies like Night of the Living Dead. When they couldn't afford to hire a composer, they would go into these libraries like the Capitol Music Library or KPM Library in England or the APM Library in America. And there would be this incredible selection of tunes uh, composed and performed by great musicians like Roger Roger in France and Robert Farnan in, in England and Laurie Johnson, names that people don't remember anymore, but were, were accomplished, wonderful musicians. And, and there was a whole library. You just had to pay for the needle drop to the uh, library. So I thought Mood Song was a way just to describe the entire um, category of what is really easy listening. You couldn't really call uh, Bernard Herrmann's music to psycho easy listening i mean it's instrumental but it's not it's not easy listening yes and uh, so yeah so you, you you so and and when you think of the early easy listening you would probably think of a hotel orchestra now when you say hotel orchestra that doesn't mean jazz at all usually you don't, and, and hotels like you know the, the Waldorf Astoria where Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians performed you had people like Lawrence Welk you had somebody named Wayne King who was called the Waltz King uh, people back then though you know in the glory days of hotels they liked to waltz they like to maybe do some fox trotting and polkas and whatnot you didn't have the free form dancing later of the 60s but that was the origin of the the idea of having a lilting sound to be in the background while people spoke and had 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 us uh, one or two champagnes and, and whatnot and then it evolved it evolved with the changing technology and we go back to technology it's the recorded sound that was the most important thing and i think that music and easy listening were the perfection of recorded sound, the, the mechanical ghosts. And another technological element that I think is key to this story is broadcast sound. And, and you know, we talk about radio as being the great rival of, of General George Owen Squire, who was the person who coined the term music and, and invented the technology that allowed you to send multiple sound signals over the same wire. So you could do things like pipe music into a building. But radio music, many of the early radio orchestra leaders like Percy Faith, Paul Whiteman, um, these are figures that come back into the easy listening cycle, the, the, the kind of light music, which is a term I hadn't really thought about before, but reading your books, I recognize that I'd come across it many times. It's not quite jazz. It's not quite classical. It's got strings. It might have horns as well. And the idea is to please the most people and displease the fewest people. And that's the idea. That's the thread that runs through all of these types of music. And radio, especially in England, where the BBC had a you know government monopoly on radio, again they wanted to please the most people, displease the fewest people. So these orchestra leaders, uh, like Montavani, who I'm going to play a song from right now, 
came up through radio in England and then perfected their form for record, like easy listening. And this is Montavani. This was actually a chart hit, Charmaine. was Montavani's Charmaine, and that was a chart hit in the States in 1953. And Montavani also had some technical innovations of his own. What was it that he did different that made him unique and such a star of this genre? Well, he was recording uh, easy listening instrumentals in, in the 40s. He did a version of uh, La Mer or Beyond the Sea, the Char- Charles Trenet song. But around 1951, uh, he had an arranger named Ronald Binge. And uh, together they came up with this idea of the cascading sound where one, I mean, it's hard to describe because I would have to have an orchestra in front of me and have a violin in my hand, but one note would follow another note of the next violin and the next violin, and he would organically, organic, organically create this cascading sound. So he developed these uh, sobriquets like the Niagara Falls of Fiddles. Um, and it was just this, this lilting sound that Charmaine had. Charmaine was a waltz that goes back to the 20s. It was a silent film called What Price Glory? And that was a standard tune that probably played in many hotels, even before Montavani made it a hit in 1951. And it was more of a hit in America. He was Italian of Italian origin, but he spent most of his time in England. But the Americans... Uh, appreciated him more when when he became uh he became a chart sensation a pre-beatles british invader (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's another thing that your books uh made me aware of it was i hadn't ever thought about the the innovations and the ideas that were going on but what montavani was doing with his strings was something that had been discovered again with radio they discovered it very early on that a lot of strings would cover up the static and the high frequency noise that has always dogged radio broadcasts particularly am when that was all they had and then they added a lot of studio echo so what montavani was doing was kind of an analog version of what we would call phasing or flanging now where you play multiple recordings slightly out of sync to get a bigger fatter sound and again it's just fascinating to think about the innovations that go on as my dog goes crazy in the background. oh yeah m- m- music to to mute dogs <laughs> well, you know when you talk about the echo effect uh that that's a fascinating uh prospect too because into the 60s um you you had AM radio was still very popular, and a lot of the pop tunes by people like Neil Sedaka, uh, Frankie Avalon, I'm thinking the pre-Beatles guys, uh, uh, Bobby V, um, they used a lot of echo or double tracking. And then there was this this this, this wonderful uh, DIY uh, record producer named Joe Meek in England who was who who 
took Echo to such extremes that it, it sounded psychotic in, in a nice way. And what it did, it, it did, um, it competed with the the waves of of AM radio, which often brought distortion. Now they could have been just serendipity, but I like the way. Uh, I remember as a little kid, we would always have the darn radio on because I had an older sibling who was interested in all the the teenage uh, pre Beatles music that was going on, and um, I, I I remember still being impressed by the echoey, eerie, echoey sounds of pop music, uh, both because of the radio technology that was transmitting it, but also in the studio. You had Phil Spector, you had Mitch Miller, who who was a great uh, one of the pioneers of echo, and and so it just went down the line, and 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 the Beatles as well when they. Uh, recorded many of their early records used echo as well uh so uh, that what was going on with pop music with echo and with strings there were lots of strings going on in pop music that teenagers were listening to that easily trans uh, morphed easily morphed into an easy listening sound and in the 1964 when 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 the Beatles got introduced via the Ed Sullivan show to America that same year uh, an American uh, arranger producer named Stu Phillips uh, put together the Hollywood Strings which was Capitol Records uh, uh, in-house studio and came out with the Beatles songbook volume one and suddenly Older people who might have been put off by the long hair or the way the Beatles looked or acted uh, suddenly heard these melodies that Lennon and McCartney put together that were just very beautiful. So what a lot of easy listening did was it teased out melody and talent that the Beatles were producing that might have gotten um, overshadowed by the, the rock and roll image and, and, and the rebel image. Exactly. And that phenomenon of one genre sort of absorbing another genre and then spitting back its own version is something that's fascinating as we you know do this show that's a history of music. And easy listening really did hold its own with rock well into the early 70s. It would it would absorb these rock songs and you know the the Percy Faith version in the early 60s was called Rock a Ballad, which very much aligned with the kind of light pop Frankie Avalon, Neil Sadaka stuff that was dominant at that point just as in the period right after World War II. In the pop world, Mitch Miller, you know, is putting out how much is that doggy in the window and that kind of smooth songs. After World War II, people didn't want a lot of raucousness. They wanted to chill out in their in their new suburban home, listen to their new sound system. And people like Jackie Gleason were making albums that were just perfect for background music for your cocktail party. Yeah, he replaced uh, Paul Weston. Paul Weston went on to Columbia, I believe, and uh, Jackie, Jackie Gleason took over Capitol. Now, Jackie Gleason didn't really have the the musical skill to conduct the orchestra, but he would kind of he would he would oversee it. And um, his albums got much more fascinating as he started getting rid of that that damn trumpet. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I like it, but uh, it, it a little bit goes a long way. But he started adding other instruments. He had something called a something uh, something an an oboe de more, and then he had uh, one album called Lonesome Echo that had uh, him shaking hands with Salvador Dali, who designed the album cover. 
cover, and it was mandolins. It was it was one of his most one of the most creative albums, and this was back at fifty five, I believe. And um, if you listen to it now, it's just fascinating. It's it's dreamlike music. You could see where Salvador Dali would be part of this project. You know, it, it was it was music that kind of went in and out like a dream, but they were often familiar songs. Um, I wished on the moon was one of the songs I remember being from that collection, and that was also a, an important part of Muzak was that there were some original compositions that some of the Muzak brass had done, but most of it was songs that were familiar, and they kept up with the times. In 1967, there was a Muzak version of Green Tambourine. There was a Muzak version of Incense and Peppermints. <laughs> you know, they they um they were finding melodies in songs that the adults during this so-called generation gap might have not recognized. But that was what was fascinating that the youth music or the, uh, well, we'll call it the, the rock and roll-ish because I don't know if you can get much out of Tutti Frutti, but you can get a heck out of a lot out of uh, something like, uh, do you want to know a secret by the Beatles? And then of course, when Sergeant Pepper came along, you, you, you had this incredible backdrop of old music from from the from the British um, uh, from the British music hall days in the American vaudeville days because Paul McCartney's father used to play with bands uh, way back when in the 20s so some of these people had musical smarts from their parents they had a knowledge of history they they weren't completely averse to knowing what went on 20 years before their birth and let's take a quick sponsor break and when we come back we'll talk about the way rock tried, ultimately incorporated these tropes like you're talking about into the rock music but let's hear sure. from our sponsor first and as you were saying sergeant peppers is the point at which rock music starts to absorb these influences that had previously been uh the property of an older generation and, and, and the Beatles chew up music hall and vaudeville the same way that they're chewing up the nascent acid rock that's coming out. And so you, you get in Sergeant Pepper's this blend of all kinds of music and that forces the easy listening artists to uh, adapt and keep up. And the sixties is kind of a golden age of this. You've got a ton of fascinating artists that are making easy listening. I'm, I'm thinking of Ferrante and Teicher in particular, who are a piano duet that started out as avant-garde musicians. And in your book, you talk about Sate and his furniture music concept. There'd always been a connection between easy listening and avant-garde intellectual music. I, I thought so, but, when I really sat down to listen to furniture music, I realized that Sati was trolling us. That if you listen to furniture, <laughs> furniture music has nothing to do with easy listening. It's cacophonous. It, it, it constantly changes. It, um, it, it, it's, 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 it's impossible not to pay attention to it. Whereas I would say that the gymnopedie. Uh, would would probably be closer to easy listening, and that's the one that you know your your blue nose is considered high art. But furniture music, I think that was a a prank that Sate had pulled on some people who I think were watching a Renee Claire silent film, and so there was an intermission, and so when they went out to to gossip or have coffee, there'd be, be this stuff called furniture music playing. But have you listened to it? It, I don't think it would it would it pass muster as elevator music. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I listened to a little bit of it, and then I got into other Sate that 
would serve the purposes of elevator music much absolutely. better. Absolutely. In fact, I used to, um, when we, when I, I would have these silent films that we would have on video, on DVD, and uh, there'd be no music to them. Um, there'd be none of that rinky-tink piano. So we would put Eric's Hot, there was an album of Eric's Hot Tea stuff with string orchestras behind it, and it would just be serendipity. The songs would just play, and often they would go very well with the scene. Nothing was planned, but that was the music that was much more in tune with easy listening. Furniture music, it was just, I think, a cacophonous joke he was pulling on people. <laughs> Sorry to say. <laughs> but the, the music itself, I mean, don't forget Debussy, a lot of these people, like, uh, you know, these, these uh, melodies like Claire de Lune, um, they just lent themselves to easy listening, and there, there were many easy listening versions. England had a light music um, phase, uh, in, in the early 20th century, and one of the people who to emerge from them was a gentleman named Cyril Scott, who had a song called Lotus Land, and Andre Castellanos did a beautiful version of that, and, and so did Martin Denny. He did kind of an exotic uh, version of it, but the music was there, either from the light music orchestras to the Lawrence Welks to the Guy Lombardos, um, and then you get into the... Um, uh, like a song like Blueberry Hill. Now, most people associate it with Fats Domino. But I think one of the first people, to, and this is going back before both our times, I'm sure, one of the first people to, re, to sing the song Blueberry Hill was a, an Irish-style crooner named Dennis Day, who used to work for Jack Betty's radio show and later his television show. And then um, in 40, I think it had to be 41, Gene Autry, sure. in 1941, performed it in a movie called The Singing, I believe, The Singing Hills. And uh, so that was that was pretty much a a, a non rock and roll tune. Uh, and and Fats Domino, and I, th I think Louis Armstrong uh, had done a version before that. But there's a version of appropriating <laughs> appropriating from from a, from another culture. It's not it's not always it's not always kind of um, bands appropriating R and B. I mean, sometimes it was the other way around. I mean, people just borrowed from each other. That's the nature of popular music. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the movie theme because um, movie music developed started in 1927 with the jazz singer. But by the time of the Grand Hotel in the early 30s, it's the first time you've got a movie where there's background music on the soundtrack that's representing the music that's heard in the hotel. And the composer Eric Copeland had a quote about his experience of writing music for movies. He says, to write music that must be inexpressive is not easy for composers who normally tend to be as expressive as possible. I like that. And I think, isn't he the one who also liked it to um, the makeup man trying not to uh, be um, obvious with his makeup, something like that. The only question I have about that quote is that he used the term inexpressive. I think the music is still expressive. It's just underplayed. You can still be expressive. Um, you know, there's this, there's this canard that people have that Muzak is soulless, that it, uh, it doesn't have any human emotion. I think that's just a myth. I mean, there were human beings that performed it. Um, the melodies were there, but just because they weren't crying them out, just because they weren't screaming, just because Judy Garland wasn't having a nervous breakdown uh, while performing, it doesn't mean that there wasn't emotion behind it. The emotion is provided by the listener. The listener remembers the song. 
Um, and that, that was one of Muzak's um, contradictions, because you would have these CEOs that would take over Muzak and say, oh, this is not meant to be listened to, it's just meant to be heard, which doesn't make any sense at all, because of course you're going to listen to it. And especially a lot of it was well done by people. I mean, uh, if you listen to the, some of the older Muzak, there's one uh, Stimulus Progression album, I think it's Stimulus Progression number five, and the songs were arranged by Nick Perito, who, who was the one who who conducted the Ferrante and Teicher uh, sessions. It's really good music, and whoever coined that idea that you're not supposed to listen to this, that it's not entertainment music, that it's not expressive, it's just, it was a dumb idea, because of course it was. Music doesn't have to scream at you. It doesn't have to cry. It doesn't have to have some kind of a, of a emotional um, conniption in order to be real. And Absolutely. Go ahead. No, I always thought that there was a big problem. People say, oh, in fact, if if I were to call music um, unemotional and mechanical, it's a lot of the dance rhythms that I hear today. If I go from store to store, I hear the same dance rhythm. So there must be the same radio station that must be playing. Some satellite radio stations going from store to store, but it's not pretty. It's not nice, soft music. It's just it's almost this well it's this like military music only it's done to a dance beat <laughs> yeah and uh, sort of you know it makes you appreciate what we've lost and let's hear a little bit of Ferrante and Teicher they're doing Henry Mancini's Moon River Ferrante and Teicher's doing Moon River, which is a theme song to a, a movie written by Henry Mancini, but this is uh, definitely an easy listening version. And, and Ferrante and Teicher, they're a classic 60s, I'd say high era easy listening or the second wave of easy listening artists. Maybe you could draw a line from Percy Faith forward. Um, that's a, a second wave of easy listening artists contrasted with the Paul Weston and Montavani and Jackie Gleason that are the first wave. Um, and then, you know, you've got people like Roger Williams and, and Liberace sort of bridged both those eras. It, it's it's a fascinating stuff, but but later on in the 80s, I guess it's in the 70s when Brian Eno comes up with ambient music and music for airports. How does that sort of music relate to easy listening and mood songs? It doesn't. It doesn't. It was an idea. I, I found it fascinating, but only in a morbid twisted way because there's nothing about that music that is comforting whether it be the music for airports or the on land or or um indiscreet music i think was is one of the uh, albums that he put out um this is music for avant-garde minded people who want to hear art or what they believe art to be. I had no problem with it. I just I only had a problem when when Eno put down the the uh, the original music as being just sappy and old fashioned, and you couldn't really listen to it. And I never agreed with that. But um, I I think that music for airports played in an actual airport in Baltimore, and the uh, clientele uh, didn't like it. <laughs> they wanted the old music back. This had to have been sometime in the eighties. 
I mean, it has. Its, I remember they had played something from Brian Eno's on land in uh, when we had the World Trade Center in in this giant atrium, and it kind of worked. And it was only at certain times of the day, but it it, it couldn't shoulder what Muzak had to shoulder as far as playing and in restaurants and supermarkets and in malls and in hotels. It it just it would just people would complain. It would just be too dark and and and, and unresolved. But even Muzak runs into that problem. You, you tell several anecdotes of people listening to piped-in music on airplanes, for example, and hearing a song that they find ominous and inappropriate for airline traffic. So music always had to balance a lot of factors. Well, you know, most pretty popular songs are sad songs. I mean, you know, you know, they always say that love isn't true unless it's unrequited. You know, uh, and and many songs had a sad uh, undertone to them. I mean, "Love Letters in the Sand," for instance, which Pat Boone made uh, popular, and I think uh, Bing Crosby made popular before him. Um, these were sad songs, and one of them was a song called For All We Know, not the one that we know from the Carpenters. This was an early version of For All We Know. And uh, I think the opening goes like, the, the lyrics say, for all we know, we may never meet again. Now, even though Muzak was playing an instrumental version of that, some woman, I think, got on an airplane. She heard that. She remembered the lyrics and freaked out. So you can't, you know, even, you know, no matter how much you try to just stress the instrumental and not the lyrical, uh, people are going to remember the lyrics. That's nothing that Muzak or anybody can really control because most songs are sad. I mean, there are some happy songs, but you don't want to hear nothing but happy songs. I mean, many love songs are very sad. If you could read my mind would be another example of the, the, the Gordon Light one I told you about before. Uh, I mean, uh, it was a very good year. Uh, remember, uh, uh, I think the Kingston Trio sang it, and then Frank Sinatra did a version. I prefer the Kingston Trio myself. But yeah, I mean, no matter what music would do or any easy listening artist would do, if you remember the song and you remember the lyrics or the song has, a, has an association uh, for you, um, that's that's. So that's the listener's burden, ultimately. You, you can't, I mean, you, you know, somebody could read the Holy Bible and commit a murder based on what he or she had read. Quite a so, few, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, always, I always think that, you know, people say, oh, this horror movie should be banned. No, not really, because in 10 years it, it'll be a classic. <laughs> but, but, you know, I wrote, uh, my previous book that I wrote uh, just before this new one came out was about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, and people say, how could you be interested in that and music? And I said, because the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is all about ripping the world apart, and music and easy listening is about keeping it together. So I like that contrast. That That is a good contrast, and that's one of my favorite movies shot right here very close to my home. But I, I want to talk about one more business aspect, which was FM radio's beautiful music genre, which kind of extends the life of easy listening for another decade and a half into the 70s and 80s. Tell us a little bit about the beautiful music format. Well, that's when, I mean, uh, when, when George Owen Squire thought of using telephone lines to transmit music, uh, radio was still not very reliable. But by the time um, the easy listening channel started becoming popular in the 60s, uh, 
you know, the radio signals were much better. And then when they got to FM, uh, they were broadcasting in stereo. Um, I never understood the term beautiful music because I remember talking, when I first started doing research on Muzak, I spoke with one of uh, Muzak's publicists and she kept saying, we don't do beautiful music. We don't do beautiful music. And I'm thinking, what would you do? Ugly music. But it was a term that some people use to describe really the easy listening instrumental. The trouble with beautiful music is that beauty is in the ear of the beholder. It's a little, it's a little arrogant. Um, I like elevator music myself. I mean, just easy listening unfortunately billboards started confusing us because they started they they realized that there was a a middle road a market of both young people and older people as rock and roll and, and pop music started gaining ground in, in the early 60s so they had a sub they had a regular top 40 and then they had like they started with 20 uh titles that they called easy listening and then middle road but they didn't have enough instrumentals so they would start including songs by frank sinatra or rosemary clooney or perry como or whatever was a pop singer then and it got confusing because you started uh, associating that with vocals which i think later became called adult contemporary which is a, which is better because i think easy listening really should be uh, confined to the instrumentals or to the Ray Conniff singers or the Johnny Mann singers. We don't want to hear Perry Como. Perry Como's great, but he belongs in a different category. You know, the music is very pretty, but calling it easy listening just is confusing to me. I, I like going back to the old uh, definitions, if possible. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense, although there's so many different definitions. And sort of like beauty and music, the definitions in the ear of, uh, you know, in the mind of the person who's using the term or having the term used to them. So all kinds of confusion can be created when you get into that, those definitions. And let's hear one last song. And this is another one you might say isn't uh, appropriate, but you did talk about it in the book. So I wanted to select it. This is from the Twin Peaks TV show soundtrack. the theme from david lynch's 1990s tv show twin peaks and you, you include that in eno in a chapter called elevator noir how do you feel like that that fits in with the easy listening mood song I, picture it fits, i like I, I i do think it fits in with easy listening because first of all uh the guy playing that guitar is vinnie bell and vinnie bell he invented he, he was at least one of the inventors of the electric guitar, he invented the water guitar that you would hear on Ferranti and Teicher albums. He came out with his own uh, recording of the airport love theme. He played on several Muzak sessions. So I think the main theme from Twin Peaks and a few of the other songs um, were uh, are relevant. And plus, Angelo Badalamenti used to go by the name Andy Badali, and he also um, had contributed to Muzak at one point. So yeah, there's there's much more of a of a, a logical progression from some of that music because I think what what David Lynch likes to do, he'd like to take the the normal 
parts of middle America and, and kind of kind of cast a, a strange, sinister shadow over them. But when I think of the musicians on that recording and the sound it was trying to do with the guitar and uh, and their, the strings, whether or not they're synthesized or real, it's it's more in keeping with easy listening. I don't know if I would put it on a an easy listening channel, but I can hear the elevator music uh, heritage in there. And, and one genre that you don't go into, but I think that occurred to my mind as something that's sort of analogous to easy listening or beautiful music, and that's smooth jazz. Where does that category fit into your historical scheme? It fits in with jazz. It has nothing to do with easy listening. It's repetitive, the same instruments over and over again. If you like jazz, you'll like smooth jazz if you want to be smooth. But I really can't stand it when people try to to lodge smooth jazz instead of uh, elevator music. Now, there have been easy listening songs that have used some jazz influence. Um, Canadian Sunset by Hugo Winterhalter had a piano segment. Um, there was a famous movie called Picnic, William Holden, and uh, there's a the theme from Picnic, which was recorded by Morris Stoloff. And part of it is Moonglow, which I guess was a jazz song. I mean, you could just, it maybe it's just a kind of a slow grooving song. But in the middle comes this, these lust strings doing the theme for Picnic. And I remember we were playing that, a friend of mine and I were playing that on the car radio, and he said, that's elevator music, as soon as the, the strings started. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there, there might not have been some jazz influences here and there, but it wasn't jazz. It wasn't improvised. Uh, um, for, for, or there might have been pseudo improvisation in some of the uh, Jackie Gleason, Paul Weston things, but smooth jazz just belongs with jazz. Let them, let them, let them uh, carry the burden of trying to figure out what it is. But it has nothing to do with easy. I'm sorry, easy listening were melodies. That's the thing about easy listening that distinguishes it from from smooth jazz is that the melody was the most important thing, not not uh, playing three card monte with it. And um, and and that's that's. I remember talking to one. I was in Australia years ago. Uh, they were uh, doing a paper called. It was called My Isles of Golden Dreams: The Beauty of Supermarket Music. And this very very blonde jazz player. He looked like uh, uh, the, the brother in Night of the Living Dead who says, I'm really coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> he, this very blonde, uh, white jazz player listened to my uh, talk and said, oh, no, you're wrong. Melody melody is not important at all. It's the rhythm. It's, it's the improvisation. I said, ah, we're talking from different planets here. Um, so no, yeah, I don't. No, I, I, I'm not a fan of smooth jazz, and it has nothing to do with easy listening. Fair enough, fair enough. And now let's let's close close the chapter on easy listening. You've got a couple of great quotes at the end of the book, and and um, I want to quote one that says, "Those who grew up in the shadow of bebop, R&B, and rock and roll at the time when anti music music sentiments came to prom- prominence saw elevator music as epitomizing the slow, safe, and sanitized culture of their elders." How do you feel subsequent generations are looking back on that stuff if they look back on it at all? Subsequent generations, I imagine, will look at elevator music as something fascinating because they don't have the prejudices. They don't have the hang-ups that the boomers and the Gen Xers had. Um, If you go to YouTube, you can see uh, almost all of the Stimulus Progression LPs are there. Uh, Some some 
uh, background music from background music companies like Seaberg and 3M, which weren't as prolific as Muzak are there. And then you have, uh, you have your Ferranti and Teichers. You have a lot of easy listening. And, and some of the comments are amazing. It's kind of like, I remember this music when I was a little kid and my mother would take me to the store and I wish they played this music again. But I think there'd be more of a fascination. I don't, I, I think in fact, they would, they would, they would, they would welcome it because how many synthesizers can you listen to? How many backbeats can you, can you pound your brain with after a while? And how many pseudo singers, uh, uh, being, um, doctored by the, the magic and wizardry of the studio, uh, mechanics, how, many, how much of that can you go through after a while? I mean, uh, you know, Millie Vanilli might've been lip syncing, but they were honestly lip syncing. <laughs> and I, I just know, I, I, I would imagine future generations, I hope would be interested. The trouble is I'm finding that with younger people, they're not interested in the past. They don't really have any idea of going into the past the way maybe somebody like Paul McCartney did because he, he was fortunate enough to have a father who played uh, music, who played piano in the 1920s. But there's no interest. I mean, I mean, I, um, nobody's going to remember who Russ Colombo was. I mean, they might re remember Frank Sinatra. He's not the best uh, uh, example. I would, I, if I were to think of some of those middle-of-the-road singers, I, I, I I would think somebody like Al Martino, perhaps, or um, some of those, but uh, not the snappy, snap your finger kind of swingy type of Brat Pack singers. I liked a lot of that. There was one easy listening singer named Julius LaRosa. Um, Jack Jones did some of that to some extent. I'm thinking about that that generation, and that. That um, style of singing continued into the 60s. I mean, uh, you would you would have these beautiful singers that you know, like Bobby V, would be would 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 sing these beautiful songs. There was a guy named Vic Dana. And, and then, of course, you had the psychedelic 60s, which were a very contradictory, fantastic age, because on the one hand, they were very threatening, you know, the idea of people taking these hallucinogenic drugs. And of course, you had these, these bands that just had these hour-long jams, like the Grateful Dead, or you would have the Jimi Hendrix experience. This was, yeah, this was, this was not music-friendly. Uh, but you would have these wonderful songs like Incense and Peppermint. You had the, the repertoire of the Beatles psychedelic era. You had Donovan. I mean, uh, the Bee Gees, their first album, was, it was called the Bee Gees First. It was the first time they had five people in the band. Almost all of the songs had a psychedelic aura, and I think the, the, the Gibb brothers wrote them, too. The reason these songs have a psychedelic aura to me, it's not as if you have to take LSD to appreciate them, but I do think that an altered state, whether it's from psilocybin or whatever, would get young people to maybe think about what would go through the mind of an old Eleanor Rigby, an old lady living by herself. The ability to empathize with somebody else from another generation and thinking about the past and thinking about old movies is something I, I, I imagine would have been influenced by the drug experience.
And that serves as a great tease for next week's episode when you're going to come back and we're going to talk about easy listening acid trip. But for today, we've been talking about elevator music in your book, A Surreal History of Music, Easy Listening and Other Mood Song. The guest is Joseph Lanza. And I want to close with this great quote. Uh, that you sum up elevator music is a mysterious art form haunting the pop culture horizon like an ancestral memory. Joseph, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will welcome Joseph Lenza back to discuss his latest book, Easy Listening Acid Trip, an elevator ride through 60s psychedelic pop. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Elevator Music, A Surreal History of Muzak, Easy Listening, and Other Mood Song is published by University of Michigan Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.